The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to another Top of the Pods, a series of episodes in which we look back over the highlights of 200 interviews we've done since we launched the Art Newspaper Podcast in September 2017. This week we're looking at what's probably the biggest art world story in that period, that of Leonardo da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi. It sold at Christie's in New York in November 2017 for $400 million, or $450 million with fees, smashing the world record for an artwork sold at auction. Ever since, it's been the subject of widespread conjecture and intrigue. We'll begin by taking you back to the morning after the night before, and my chat with Judd Tully, who was in the Christie's sale room in Manhattan for the art newspaper on Wednesday the 15th of November 2017, and witnessed this momentous event. It was a packed room... Um, everyone was looking for these special red paddles that Christie's dreamed up. Sometimes they use it in uh, jewelry sales to kind of vet potential bidders who wanted to bid on the Leonardo because it was, uh, you know, suggested that the estimate was something like in the region of 100 million. And actually, During the early part of the 19-minute-long marathon um, battle for the painting, you see Pilcannon, the auctioneer, when the price went to $90 he said, he told the sales room, uh, I can sell it at 90 And, you know, which seemed kind of, wow, there's no interest. And then that seemed to just trigger this bidding war between um, three anonymous telephone bidders, and I believe there was one person in the room. I couldn't see them. But as the numbers ticked up, and they started uh, the bidding at $70 million, and they moved quite along easily at $5 million. And then I think it was Louis Guzer, who's Christie's, chairman of post-war contemporary whatever and sort of the if you want to call it the mastermind behind the uh, this whole marketing campaign for the painting for the leonardo he jumped i think it was 10 million dollars and then you just saw this sort of shootout between incredibly wealthy people and the numbers kept going up and as they went and surpassed the Picasso price for his uh, painting that made, I think it was $179 million. You could start hearing gasps in the room, and, uh, and it just kept going. And, I mean, it was just kind of flabbergasting, uh, flabbergasting that there didn't seem to be any end of it. And, you know, the, it, at certain points, the bidding slowed down, and then it you know, it was only only two million dollar increments, and then all of a sudden, Alex Rotter, who's uh, co-chairman, I think, of the post-war and formerly uh, head of Sotheby's Contemporary Art, and he moved over to Christie's um, about a year ago. Uh, suddenly, he raises the uh, the bidding by thirty million dollars. From 370 when it was at 370 to 400, and that did it. And and what happened? So when the gavel when the gavel finally thwacked down, was there what was there applause? Was there a, a kind of stunned silence? It was uh, you know whistles, clapping, hooting. 
uh, you know, it was like a party. I mean, it's very theatrical. The whole thing was, you know, like a performance art piece. And I think just everyone was just dumbfounded. Now, one of the Leonardo scholars who's authenticated the Salvatore Mundi is Martin Kemp, Professor Emeritus of the History of Art at Trinity College in Oxford. He's one of the world's leading experts in Leonardo's work. We spoke to him in March 2018 when he published his book Living with Leonardo, and among much else, our London correspondent Martin Bailey asked him about the Salvatore Mundi and his reaction to that stratospheric sale. I was interested in the book that um, uh, you reproduced the very poor early black and white photograph of the painting before it was restored in the early 20th century. And you actually described it uh, as an image of a drug crazed hippie. Um, so at that point, um, uh, um, many years, some years ago, you obviously reject it. Uh, what is your present position? And do you accept that it's entirely from Leonardo's hand? Most of what we see speaks of Leonardo. The difficulty is that some of the areas still with paint surviving have been quite abraded. So it's very difficult to say, well, that is absolutely Leonardo. But those areas I confine to the drapery and particularly to the interlace work, this very complex work, knot work, which you may well get assistance to do. You know, Leonardo would do a passage of it and say, that's how you do it. It goes over there, under there, and how the threads work. And somebody could go on and do it. But I would say, of what I can see, the huge majority of it, I don't want to turn it into a percentage, but the huge majority of it is utterly consistent with Leonardo. Yes. And it's consistent in style and also the way he manipulates the subject matter. So it's not just a question of a connoisseurly or judgment by eye, as I prefer to call it, coming in and saying, this is Leonardo, I can tell. But there's a lot of very subtle manipulation of that subject for a particular kind of content. And what about the price, $450 million? Did this price surprise you, and is the painting worth it? On the night of the sale, uh, it was obviously night in, in England, and I knew that there was a guarantee on the painting of $100 million. Somebody had backed that, that price, and I think that's how they prized it out of uh, Riboloff left, that they basically said, well, we've got a guaranteed price for this, as he wasn't... I think, intending to sell it initially. And I thought, since the Riboloff left paintings have been selling for much less than he paid Bouvier for them, the king of the free ports, I thought this is going to struggle to get much above 100, 100 million. I thought it would probably get to 110 million. So I went to bed. <laughs> I thought, I'm just not, yeah, I can do better things and Maybe you should have stayed up. (laughs) Well, at two o'clock in the morning, my phone started ringing and I opened my emails and they were going bing, bing, bing. And all hell broke loose. And um, I then spent, Judd, my PA, came round. And we then spent the next 24 hours doing the round of the new studios. And it was completely crazy. Uh, And breakfast and lunch disappeared somehow or other. And it was absolutely astonishing. And what it shows is that Leonardo, and it's one reason I wrote the book, um, is of a different league. Different league than Michelangelo, from any of the big figures from Shakespeare, that he, like them, is subject to enormous myths and terrific public interest. But the degree to which Leonardo evokes that is, I think, completely extraordinary. 
So I don't think this is a world record price for a painting in the normal market. It's a, it's a world record price for a Leonardo, which is a completely separate thing from, from anything else. No, it's just astonishing. Living with Leonardo is published by Thames and Hudson and priced $34.95 in the US or £19.99. In April 2019, the critic and broadcaster Ben Lewis came into the studio to discuss his latest book, The Last Leonardo. The previous week, the book had made the front page of the Times newspaper in London because it reveals that when five international Leonardo scholars were shown the painting in March 2008 at the National Gallery, there were doubts about its attribution to Leonardo. To quote Lewis, the final score from the National Gallery meeting seems to have been two yeses, one no and two no comments. Yet, when the painting appeared in the National's 2011 Leonardo blockbuster, it was unequivocally attributed to Leonardo and described as an autograph work. This was among the many conundrums and mysteries surrounding the Salvatore Mundi that we discussed. Another was the whereabouts of the painting. Since then, it's been reported that it's on a yacht owned by Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince. And still, it's uncertain whether the painting will appear in this autumn's blockbuster Leonardo show at the Louvre in Paris, marking the 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death. The plot continues to thicken. Anyway, here's the interview with Ben Lewis from April this year. Tell me about this meeting at the National Gallery and about what that tells us about the attribution of this painting to Leonardo. Uh, only a month or two into the research into the story of the painting and its, it's, its attribution, I started focusing pretty quickly on this National Gallery meeting. And then I noticed that everyone else who was telling the story and the Salvatore Mundi and studying the Salvatore Mundi, you know, they were all art historians. So it was all about, you know, the curls of the hair and the embroidery and the, you know, the sfumato on the face and the blessing hand and the shadow here and there. And da-da. you know, they weren't journalists. But if you're a journalist, in which, you know, I am partly, it's an interdisciplinary book, but let's face it, I am partly a journalist. I'm supposed to be quite good at that. You know, you look at events, dates, events documents what people say when and here was this meeting you know behind closed doors you know okay it's fine you, you sometimes you've got to have a meeting behind closed doors you don't want everybody to know what you said when where da, 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 da. but this meeting behind closed doors there was no minutes from it you know nothing came out of it there was the press release that came out of it was re- was printed three years later you know the meeting was in 2008 the press release was published printed in 2011 like that's weird. So, you know, basically, something went on there. That was the pivot, in a way, of the whole story, because the attribution of the Salvatore Mundi was really the National Gallery's business. It was putting it in the Leonardo show, this big, fantastic show, whatever Luke Sison put on, putting it in there and said, this is a Leonardo. And then, you know, it could be sold as a Leonardo. And we know what happened after that. So I zoomed into the meeting. I found out who was there. You know, there were five art historians. One of them was actually there only the day later, but this was the cabal, or the high council, as I call it in my book. You know, and um, I just contacted them all. And it was actually incredibly difficult to get answers out of some of them. You know, like, like David Allen Brown, eventually he wrote me, you know, a great email saying, I believe this is a Leonardo. The moment I saw it, I knew this was a Leonardo. I authentic- I'm one of the people who authenticated it. 
very grateful for you for hearing your opinion. David Allen Brown took me like eight months to get that out of him. And I had to write a letter to the press, the umpteenth email to the press office saying I was going to complain that by not responding to me, they were breaching American Museum guidelines. Like basically, like, that's quite a serious... Because he's know, at the charge. National Gallery of Art in Washington. Yeah, he's a big fish. And I, I, you know, I was basically accusing him of being unethical in order to get an answer. So that was quite extreme. You know, Pietro Morani um, was... Mm, I don't want to talk about this on the phone. I don't want to talk about this in an email. But it, but if if you you know if you come if I come to London, I'll talk to you. So I, I you know months later I went to Milan and you know he saw me and he he was you know gave, gave me his answer. I did not authenticate it as a Leonardo. Nobody asked me to. Yeah, this is interesting. He wasn't asked. Well, you know, nobody there was actually asked. Do you think this is a Leonardo? Nobody was asked to take part in either an official authentication procedure of some kind or to participate in an informal consensus all that happened was that there was an informal discussion around the painting right in the conservation studio in alongside the, another leonardo painting yeah and alongside the, the virgin of the rocks which the national gallery also thinks is the real leonardo but most other people think is mostly done by assistants so you know spot the spot the agenda here Anyway, so they're all, you know, they talk informally. And of course, they're very, and, you know, if you don't put an art historian on the spot, he's going to be, re- he or she is going to be really polite. Because why antagonize, you know, your host or a museum that one day you might want to borrow a work of art from? You know, I mean, professional networks are everything in art history uh, and in the museum world. So basically, they all nodded their head. Oh, yes, very interesting. Yes, very Leonardo. Yeah, fantastic. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Thank you for inviting us. You know, and they all went away. And then, um, yeah, Luke Sison, the creator of the exhibition, yeah, reported back to Sir Nicholas Penny that the people at the meeting had said it was a Leonardo brackets, although they thought some parts of it might have been painted by his assistants. But the interesting thing is that Luke Sison, when he writes up the catalogue entry on the work, so it's in this exhibition, this Leonardo exhibition, and in the catalogue entry in the catalogue, he makes a quite forceful case for it being an autograph work by Leonardo. Well, Luke Sison is entitled to his opinion that this is an autograph work by Leonardo, and that is his opinion, you know, and he's a very distinguished... Uh, he's a very distinguished curator and also, you know, a really nice guy to talk to. And he passionately believes this is Leonardo, or at least this is the last time I spoke to him. Um, but uh, the fact is that, you know, other people at that meeting were not convinced and he did not faithfully reflect their views. So you've got Martin Kemp and David Allen Brown on the one hand. Correct. And they are the two yeses, we think. Yeah. But there was a And they're great. Ma- they're big yeses. They're great yeses. But Pietro Morani is also a really big Leonardo hitter. He's the Italian, you know, Leonardo scholar. He, he's the big guy, and he's like, well, I'm not saying one way or the other. And then you have Maria Teresa Fiorio, who I also met. He's a, you know, fan, you know, specialist in the Lenardeschi and Leonardo's assistants, pupils and followers, all that stuff. And she just said, you know, I never gave an opinion. And then, like, three years later... I'm reading in the newspapers that I'm one of the four people who said this was a Leonardo, you know. I mean, and she wrote me an email, you know, it's in black and white. You know, she was not very happy. And what did she say in that email? This is what, essentially, I I never gave this authentication. Yeah, that's exactly what she said. Dear Ben, I've never issued official opinions on the uh, Salvatore Mundi, and in any any case, I've never been asked to do so. I've always discussed informally with colleagues, and I do not... know what use my, was made of my opinion. 
Certainly it happened after the London exhibition. If the Salvatore Mundi was exhibited as an autograph work at the National Gallery, it was an autonomous decision by my colleagues in London. I've never been asked for an official opinion. So I, had, uh, I asked her, you know, why didn't you... If, if, you're, if you were misused, if your views were misrepresented in this way, why didn't you bring it up? That was what I said to her. She, she, you know, because I was really pursuing her. I wanted to make really sure of this. So she said, I had no reason to raise the problem with my colleagues in London. I certainly discussed it with Professor Morani, but we've known each other for 30 years and our discussions always have a friendly and informal character. Right. So, so it, this is a really interesting thing about, and I think you bring it out really well in the book, about actually within the sort of scholarship community around Leonardo, there are lots of people with particular bugbears, particular passions, particular little projects. And you sort of bring this out really nicely in the book, I think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the Leonardists, uh, there's no love lost between the Leonardists. And when I went through the Kenneth Clark archive at the Tate, I found this letter from Kenneth Clark uh, uh, to uh, Carlo Padretti, who was the big Italian Leonardo scholar. Uh, you know, he, he dominated Leonardo scholarship in Italy in the second half of the 20th century, and he died in 2007, you know, and said the Salvatore Mundi was not by Leonardo but he hadn't actually seen it. But anyway, I discovered a letter from uh, uh, to him from Kenneth Clark, and, Ke- and it's a qu- quote at the front of the book, and it's basically um, the, polit- the politics of Leonardo's scholarship are like any other politics, except so far no blood has been spilt. <laughs> so the, the field of scholarship, obviously, it's, so, it's such high stakes, especially with Leonardo, because there are so few paintings. And again, you go into this in quite a lot of detail in the book, don't you? You want, you, you want to trace the history of the artist and the number of paintings he's made. I mean, the book's a yarn, basically, or if you like, it's three yarns in one. You know, it's not just a sort of investigation or, you know, a journalistic account of, you know, some dodgy attribution. It's not really like that. It's basically the, the spine of the, of the book is a kind of heist story. It's a thriller. It's like, how do these guys buy a picture for 1175 bucks and within 12 years turn it into 450 million bucks that is amazing <laughs> you know and i totally salute them i think they're, I, I mean i really like them i really admire them and the fact they managed to persuade the saudis of all people to part with a half a billion dollars on this leonardo brilliant hats off to them nice one i wish we could do that every week so that's like the spine of the story. How do you, how do you do that? You know, it's amazing. It's a, it, I mean, no one's ever made so much money so quickly before. Anyway, there's that. But then, and then underneath that, there's the history of the painting. You know, and it starts as a, you know, it starts with a walnut tree because it's painted on walnut wood, and you know, you get the, the painting. The wood panel is cut and it's coated, and and then it follows the painting. You know, the POV point of view of the painting through these different you know, palaces and penthouses and also, you know, dusty storerooms and dull American suburbs. You know, it, it traces this 500-year history. It has most amazing ups and downs. I swear, no painting in the history of the world has ever had such extreme experiences. And that's why, you know, I just so love telling the story. I just, that was just so amazing. It was so much larger than life. And then underneath that, right, there's a third sort of strand, in a way, a third book, which is, 
you know, a a sort of biography of Leonardo, very simple with a few different theme chapters devoted to a few different themes that takes a, sl- a slightly less reverential attitude to Leonardo than, you know, the books by Walter Isaacson or Martin Kemp. You know, I call him a, as well as a genius, I call him a, a doodler and a dawdler, you know. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, the notebooks are totally chaotic, and um, he had huge problems finishing paintings. He usually gave up. You know. <laughs> Indeed. Now, uh, of course, the story begins, as you say, in this most unlikely scenario where uh, a very uh, diligent uh, scholar and dealer, you know, kind of a small-time dealer, really, dis- yeah. looks in... Medium-sized dealer. Medium-sized One dealer. of them's medium-sized, you know, erudite, and the other guy it just... He just had a load of bad luck all his life, Alex Parrish. You know, he's the guy who first saw it on the internet and stuff. And like, great, good for him, you know. Yeah. So Alex Parrish and Robert Simon are these sort of are these sort of unlikely brothers in arms. Yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah, they're brilliant. They're totally unlikely couple, if you like, or partnership. You know, that's one of the joys of the book. Is it almost has this fictional quality? You know, I mean, Robert Simon is very quiet very careful about everything he says you know really weighs everything up and says very little and discreet you know and Alex Parrish just blurts it all out you know and he actually at one point in his life became a born-again Christian you know he's been down on his luck so many times you know as he says I've been down to one suitcase more than once in my life you know and he's he's used to being very low down on the food chain whereas uh, you know, Robert Simon is used to being, you know, part of sophisticated, uh, you know, uptown society. And I love the way they sort of go together. And the reason they're together, right, is because ultimately they're both pretty decent guys and they know they can trust each other. Right. And th- but they both separately spotted that there was this interesting picture in this auction in, in, in uh, New Orleans. Yeah, I think Alex saw it first on the Internet. But, you know, Robert was getting the Robert was getting the hard copy catalogues in the mail. And he must have seen it very shortly afterwards, because when Alex rang up, as I understand it, Robert was like, yeah, I've seen that. That looks interesting. Yeah. Right. And so they bought it at this, at this auction for how much? $1,175. <laughs> and what happens from there? Well, they bought it and, and they got it. They, did, they never actually went to New Orleans. They, sent, they got a courier to pick it up or whatever. It's great. They bought it over the Internet and on the telephone. They got a courier to pick it up. Took it to New York, you know, got it to New York. Alex unpacked it and it's like, oh, this looks really interesting. And then, you know, Robert Simon took a look at it and was like, yeah. And then Robert, you know, had had some connections to a a very distinguished restorer couple. You know, uh, Mario, Mario and Diane Modestini, husband and wife, both restorers, sort of worked together some of the time. And um, he he brought it round to them and showed it showed it to them. And, 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 you know, Mario was just a year away from death, sadly. And he, but he looked at it and was like, hmm, it's not a Leonardo, it's, but it's painted by somebody really good a generation after his death. You know, that's quite interesting. And it's, that's quite revealing that he would say that, you know. And then um, Robert asked Diane to restore it. And she said, yeah, I'll do it. And did she believe it was a, a Leonardo? Well, she, at a certain point in the restoration, she came to believe it was a Leonardo, yes. By that point, her husband had died, and I think she was in a very emotional state, you know. I mean, she was really upset about his death, and she'd write, she actually writes about it in, her, in a chapter in his memoir. She writes the last chapter about, you know, about restoring the Salvatore Mundi, and she says, you know, 
she was taking various kinds of medication to calm down and you know she was carrying on a conversation with Mario in her head so I think one could argue that the picture took on a somewhat larger than life role in her in her inner world and anyway she was restoring it you know and she came to a point I think she was doing the mouth I can't remember I think it was the mouth you know and she thought the mouth was just so delicately painted you know that it, only Leonardo could paint like that but you know actually restorers aren't really meant to make attributions and it, it's a very difficult area whether you know one of Leonardo's followers could actually paint a mouth just like Leonardo I mean they certainly knew how it's interesting, isn't it? But, but, but I suppose one of the the most interesting... Her role is really pivotal in this process, isn't it? Because she took on the painting when it was in really pretty shabby condition. Can you give us some of the details about uh, what it looked like when it came into her... Well, not her possession, but into her studio? Oh, God, it was a total wreck. And that was that wreck was the word that um, the fantastic British art historian Ellis Waterhouse used when he saw the painting at the Sotheby's auction in 1958, which was when... A painting was sold to a New Orleans furniture company executive for 45 quid. Anyway, he saw the picture, just like, wreck. You know, wreck. It was a Cook Collection picture. There's a fact that isn't in my book that I only discovered today, or yesterday, or last week, because I keep following stuff up. So it was bought, right, at the Cook Collection sale in Sotheby's, 1958, for 45 pounds, right? That's nothing. And there were lots of other more expensive pictures from the Cook Collection that sold for a lot more. Now, one of them was uh, Cesare de Sesto, St. Jerome, which was actually hanging below the Salvatore Mundi. It was 107 in the Cook Collection catalogue, and the Salvatore Mundi's 106A. So, you know, you've got the Cesare de Sesto underneath, right? The Salvatore Mundi goes for 45 quid. Uh, ben, how much do you think the Cesare de Sesto goes for? £1,750. So an, an astronomically larger amount than the Salvatore Mundi. Yeah, I went to see it last week. It's in the Southampton Art Gallery. Anyway, you were asking me something completely different. The state of the picture was it was a total wreck. It had it, <clears throat> only about 20% of the picture was Leonardo's final layers on it, right? 20% of the picture was sort of scratched away to the wood or somebody else's overpaint. And then 60% was sort of Leonardo's underlayers plus somebody else's overpaint here and there fact it had obviously been restored many many times in its history i mean it had been restored once in the late 20th century but it had also been restored you know at least once in the 19th century if not twice you know and it's one of these sort of hybrid works of art you know it the artist the original artist leonardo might have been involved the the studio worked on it, his assistants were not really sure which, and then restorer after restorer worked on it to repair whatever damage, you know, somebody had done to it along the way. I mean, just, I mean, art history is a lot richer than one thinks, you know, and there are often many more authors than one thinks in a work of art. But this one, in terms of like, in terms of the amount of damage it, the Salvatore Mundi had, right, and in terms of where that damage was, like most of it on the face, and this is a portrait, you know, I think it, we can safely say that no newly discovered painting by a major artist has ever had so much damage on it when it was discovered. One of the big factors in that is 
the fact that it's painted on walnut with a knot in a really crucial part of the panel. Yeah. This is one of the sort of inexplicable reasons, you know, this this doesn't tally with the great technician Leonardo who was very careful about True. the surfaces he painted on and all that kind of stuff. True. And one of the first things Frank Zollner, who's who wrote the catalogue raisonné of Leonardo's paintings and, and drawings too, one of the first things and Frank Zollner said to me in his sort of gruff German was no, I don't think Leonardo would, you know, would use a piece of wood like that. I mean, he knew about wood. He was uh, very interested in technique and t- technology. No, very difficult to imagine, you know. I mean, the wood was already a problem. And then not only that, normally if there's a knot in a panel, and God knows there are plenty of paintings out there from the Renaissance with knots in the panel. The knot is filled in with vegetable fibres to sort of help it, you know, contract, expand, you know, in different heat, different dry, dry or humid conditions to make it a bit safer. You know, and this knot had not been filled in. And I find that, you know, incredibly mysterious. I mean, it's almost inexplicable, really. What, what are the characteristics of the paintings that convince you that Leonardo may have had a hand in it? Oh, there's a few of those. The blessing hand is extremely subtle. Uh, you know, it's very softly lit... And it's got kind of really cool little shade, little shadows along the fi- along the fingers, and the fingernails are really kind of subtly done. And then, if you look at the orb hand, there's some really nice uh, highlights on the fingertips that are like reflected light. That's luster that Leonardo wrote about. Although you can sometimes see that on other copies of the Salvatore And then there are these fantastic sort of ringlets on them. Um, on the uh, well, right side of his head, I think. It's right when you're looking at it. You know, it's like a double helix of ringlets. And that's like such a specific structure. And if you look at all the paintings by Leonardo's followers, the hair is quite schematic and they don't have an amazing shape in there like that. So when you look at that shape, it's quite like... It's difficult not to think Leonardo didn't have a big hand to play in it. But you just don't know if there's some... You know, if he'd done a drawing like that once upon a time, which is now which is now lost, which an assistant used. And what about the optics? Because, again, you know, we know that Leonardo was this great scientist, but you think that there are some inconsistencies because it wouldn't a great scientist have have captured the optics in the orb, for instance, and also the distance of the figure from the hand and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the optics in the orb are bizarre, absolutely bizarre there's another um, German art historian based in Switzerland called Dietrich Siebold who looked at the infrared and thought he could see that actually in the underdrawing the artist did bend the light bend the drapery folds behind the orb but he's not really sure about it but it's just bizarre that there's no there's no strong indication whatsoever that the you know light alters behind the orb and I don't think it's very difficult to conceive Leonardo painting something like that just so erroneously. I mean, you can imagine him toning it down or something, but not totally like that. And if you look at the, the you know, the glass, the, the the wine in the glasses in the Last Supper in the Royal Academy, you can see a little bit of refraction, you know, with the robes and stuff behind, you know. It's, it's not ma- major, but there's a little bit going on. You know, and the other thing is, the other strange thing about the, opti- the optics is, you know, the face. Ma- Martin Kemp suggested that the reason the face is so sort of ethereal and blurred and the hand is so crisp is because, you know, Leonardo was sort of using depth of field and, you know, he'd written about aerial perspective and he said that if things were further away, Leonardo, you know, advised in his note, in his the notes he, for his treatise on painting, he said if things are farther away, they should look less distinct, you know. But if that's the case... 
you know, why is Leonardo's face so ethereal, but the hair, which is in the same plane, why is that so sharp? There were all sorts of inconsistencies, in other words. Oh, it's just a fantastic puzzle. I mean, the whole painting is just a fantastic puzzle, you know. I mean, it, it, the sense in the book of, is, is really like it's a sort of rollicking tale, apart from anything else. And, of course, this, this is consistent with a lot of your work before you came to even think about Leonardo in terms of studying the art world and what you see as a, the deep corruptions and, and problems with the art world. Can you tell us more about that? Well, um, I have in the past made a very critical film about the contemporary art market. And I tried to take a step back, really, with this book and just, you know, there's lots of opinions by me at the end of the book. But until then, there's a major effort just to lay out the facts and the pluses and the minuses and try and encourage the reader to reach an opinion. But, you know, you're asking me for my opinion you know, here we have a newly discovered painting by the greatest artist who ever lived, and it dare not show its face. You know, it's invisible. It's disappeared. It's so shameful, you know, that it can't be seen. I mean, I, that's really damning of, if you like, the art ecosystem. I mean, something is going seriously wrong. And it's not, in a way, it's not really for me to say what that is. I mean, this is so bad that it's like over to you guys, over to you, Martin Kemp, over to you, Luke Sison, you know, over to you, Nicholas Penny, over to you, Pietro Morani, you know, sort this out. What, in, what, what are your theories about, on the one hand, where is it? And, and, and also, why, why do we not know where it is? Well, we're pretty sure it's in Switzerland. <clears throat> because if you want to move it, right... It's very, very delicate. It's in five different pieces that are delicately glued together. You paid $450 million for it. You know, you're not going to put it in a plastic bag. You have to ring out the restorer, Diane Modestini, really, in New York, and make sure how to do it. No, I mean, no, nobody entrusted with moving that picture is going to move it like that. Just say, move it. So in the autumn, a Swiss restorer actually did ring up Diane and said, I, you know, we were thinking about sending the picture to France. How do we move it? So it's like, oh... Now we know it's in Switzerland, you know. So it's it, you know it's in some lockup in Switzerland. It's almost certain that it was bought, you know, by the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, Crown Prince, you know, Mohammed bin Salman. So he's almost certainly got it. Um, why isn't he showing it? Possibly because he wants to save it up for his own museum. But I think that there's a kind of embarrassment. Not not because it's a picture of Christ. I mean, I think that's kind of neither here nor there. But I think, you know, there are p- problems with the attribution of this painting. There are problems with the provenance of this painting. And there's problems with the restoration of this painting, all of which I sort of enumerated in my book. And I think they're worried. Is one of the sort of purposes of this book and drawing attention to it, the front page story on The Times, is one of your hopes that, that it might flush the painting out? Yes, I think we have to flush out the Salvatore Mundi. I would do anything to see it. Um, if I can just take this opportunity to tell the world, I will sacrifice any body part of which I have too if I can see the Salvatore Mundi. Yeah, I, I think we all need to see it really. And we need, to, you know, in a way, presenting the, bringing, bringing the painting out of its hiding place, it's the same as, as my book. It's bringing all the facts out of their hiding place and putting them in, you know, the public domain. And when I brought a couple of stories to the art newspaper and, my, you know, while I wrote the book and my publisher was like, oh, can't you save them up for the book? And I'm like, 
I just don't believe in that. I think it's art. It's there to be shared. And if you have information, you know, put it out in the public domain and let's all talk about it or argue about it. And if we do that, I think we can come to a much deeper and more honest appreciation of whatever it is, is a really interesting painting. Is your sense that we might see it at the Louvre in the big Leonardo show later in the year? I'm going to say very, very unlikely because the Louvre, I'm sure, want to borrow it. I'm equally sure they don't want to put a label next to it that says Leonardo da Vinci, right? That is a problem. And the guy lending it, you know, the the Saudis, I'm sure they want to see it in the Louvre in Paris, you know, but I'm sure they don't want to see it in the Louvre in Paris's workshop of Leonardo. Is that because the curator at the Louvre is one of the people that would say it's possible that it's by Leonardo, but I can't be sure? Well, the curator of the Louvre, by the last reckoning, did not have an opinion either way. And the, 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 the sort of, you know, highly placed sources tell me that the Louvre, as a collective group of curators, do not think this is an autograph Leonardo. It's going to rumble on for some time. Ben, your book is really fascinating. Thanks so much for coming on and telling us about it. Thanks for inviting me. The Last Leonardo by Ben Lewis is published by William Collins at £20 in the UK and by Ballantine Books in the US and Canada, priced $28. That's all for this episode. Don't forget you can follow all the latest developments in the art world at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS, which you can find at the App Store. On the website, you'll find a range of subscriptions so that you can read our content seamlessly across multiple platforms. And you can subscribe for free to our daily newsletter for all the latest stories. Go to theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. Do subscribe to this podcast wherever you normally listen to them. And please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. We're also on Instagram and Facebook, of course. The Art Newspaper Podcast is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David does the editing. We'll be back with another Top of the Pods next week. Bye for now. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now.